0: Welcome to the Kings and Queens podcast with your host, Johnny Langton. On the death of a queen, Arthur Balfour wrote I suppose that, in all of the history of the British monarchy, there never has been a case in which the feeling of national grief was so deep seated as it is at present, so universal, so spontaneous. And that grief affects us not merely because we have lost a great personality but because we feel that the end of a great epoch has finally come upon us. An epoch, the beginning of which stretches beyond the memory, I suppose, of any individual whom I am now addressing, and which embraces within its compass sixty-three years, more important, more crowded, with epoch-making change, than almost any other period of like length that could be selected in the history of the world. This is Victoria. Victoria was born at Kensington Palace on the 24th of May, 1819. She was born Alexandrina Victoria, after her godfather, Tsar Alexander but always preferred to go by Drina, and then Victoria later in life. She was born to be Queen. Her uncle, George, Prince of Wales, was childless after the death of his daughter, Princess Charlotte. It meant the ailing King George III's sons began a feverish quest to marry and produce legitimate heirs to protect the line of succession after their generation. When the wife of George III's fourth son, Prince Edward, the Duchess of Kent gave birth to Alexandrina Victoria, the Hanoverians were safeguarded. It was an incredibly important moment for the family, and the line was protected with the first of a new generation born. Victoria was born fifth in line to the throne. Uncles George, Frederick, William, and her father Edward were ahead. Her father was incredibly proud and protective, pronouncing her as plump as a partridge Unfortunately, in January 1820, Edward caught a chill in Devon and died of pneumonia at the age of 52. Six days later, King George III died at the age of 81 after nearly 60 years on the throne. Within a week, the infant had moved to third in the line of succession. She was just eight months old. Victoria would routinely latch onto father figures for the rest of her life. Victoria had an extremely sheltered upbringing. A strict timetable of lessons and rules was designed to improve and maintain Victoria's morality and intellect. This became known as the Kensington system, and was reinforced by her mother and her Comptroller John Conroy, whom she felt under the complete influence and authority. The strict regime included exercise and a plain diet. She was taught writing, arithmetic, dancing, and deportment, horse-riding, painting, and languages. Elocution lessons were designed to soften her accented German. Her speech was described as containing mangled phrases, particularly unpleasant coming from the lips of an English princess. Conroy's and her mother's insistence of moulding a queen meant Victoria was not allowed friends. This was risky. Her only companions were those reinforcing the Kensington system, half-sister Theodore and governess Louise Lazen. a behaviour book kept record of all her misdemeanours. She was constantly watched and couldn't even walk down the stairs without an adult holding her hand. At 9pm, prompt, she would go to bed, and until the day she became queen she shared a bedroom with her mother. She grew up truthful, punctual, and frugal, yet deeply resentful. At the age of 13, she began writing in a journal, expressing this resentment. She would go on to write for the rest of her life, compiling over 43,000 pages. By the time Victoria was in her late teens, her accession to the throne became inevitable. Her uncles had failed to produce their own heirs. Two of her uncles, George IV and Frederick, had died, leaving her heir to William IV, her ageing uncle. Due to the Kensington system, she wasn't granted access to her uncle, who himself hated Victoria's mother, the Duchess. So much so that he gave a speech at his birthday, making clear that his final wish was to live long enough to prevent the Duchess from becoming Victoria's regent. He got his wish. Victoria turned 18 just weeks before the king's death. She learned of his death when woken up early in the morning on the 20th of June, 1837. Due to Salic law preventing the succession of a woman in Hanover, the 120-year constitutional link was split, with the Hanoverian crown passing to a younger brother, Ernest. He was viewed as a sinister, lurking figure in Victoria's life, suspected by many of wanting to wrest the throne. The Duchess and Conroy continued to try and control Victoria to no avail. Conroy told Victoria, This is not a game. In future, you must be accompanied by your mother or me. The Duchess added, Yes, you are just a little girl. You must have advisers." Victoria responded. Oh, don't worry, Mother. I won't be completely alone. I have Dash. Her spaniel." She immediately transferred her household to Buckingham House, renaming it Buckingham Palace, becoming the first monarch to live at a London residence. There was little chance she would share a bedroom with her mother. The Duchess was given a suite in the distant wing of the palace and could only visit her daughter by appointment. Conroy was out, He wrote to the Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, to complain and demand a peerage, a pension and a seat on the Privy Council. He was given a baronetcy and a pension. His suggestion of becoming Victoria's new private secretary was given short shrift. He would retain no influence over the new Queen. She was free. Louise Lazen did remain close, as did her uncle, Leopold I of Belgium who would advise the Queen from overseas. On the 28th of June, 1838, Queen Victoria was crowned. The coronation attracted as many as half a million people to London from as far-flung places as the United States. The streets were festooned with bunting and every window and balcony was crammed with spectators. Hotels were fully booked and the poor camped on the streets and in the parks. The service wasn't without its mishaps. Lord Roll, deep into his eighties, fell down the stairs of a throne. Victoria rushed to his aid. The Bishop of Bath and Wells was forced to repeat part of a service when turning two pages by mistake. Victoria's coronation ring was too small, meaning it had to be jammed onto her finger, taking two hours to remove after the ceremony. The cost was modest, around £70,000. A quarter of the budget of George IV's coronation. Nevertheless, the delighted nation saw its first queen since Anne, and her first young, healthy queen since Elizabeth. The Victorian era had begun. The new queen was very short, she was just four foot eleven. She complained that the stress of Kensington had stunted her growth. She had fair skin and blue eyes, with long flowing hair. Far from being the dour and stern queen often portrayed, she was described as a more homely human being you've ever beheld. She blushes and laughs every instant in so natural a way as to disarm anybody. Her smile was sweet and entrancing. Her voice was like a silver stream flowing over golden stone. She was good-humoured and high-spirited. Her laugh was particularly delightful and so full of girlish glee. She was fun-loving and would often laugh at jokes others would find shocking or scandalous. Accounts weren't always flattering. She was known to have a keen appetite. She eats quite as heartily as she laughs. I think I may say, she gobbled. Her speed at the dining table became problematic for her guests, needing to keep up or else their meal would be taken away once Victoria had finished. She was also a keen artist, many of her drawings are still preserved. She was keen on Walter Scott, Charles Dickens and Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. She visited circuses, waxwork exhibitions and played chess. Breaking away from Hanoverian tradition, she was not a fan of Handel. She was also no Sabbatarian. I am not an approver of our very dull Sunday. In her first Privy Council meeting, she impressed. She was small, but carried herself well, and had a delightfully silvery voice. She became a real stickler for court etiquette. She was no progressive, Protocol and punctuality were paramount. Uniforms and dress codes were strictly enforced. Little had changed since the 18th century. Men were not allowed to appear in the latest fashion. If they weren't serving, they would be obliged to wear a claret tailcoat, knee breeches, an embroidered waistcoat of white or cream silk, a lace shirt with ruffles and long white silk stockings. They would be required to carry a sword and wear a beacorn hat with gold trimmings. Of one typical event, Victoria wrote in her diary, it began immediately at quarter past two and lasted until half past four without one minute's interruption. I had my hand kissed nearly three thousand times. To fulfil a strictly regimented schedule, Victoria had a household, of around 450 individuals, including domestic servants, but also painters, dentists, physicians, surgeons, chaplains, photographers and musicians, hairdressers, and even a chimney sweep and a rat killer. She immediately bonded with the Whig Prime Minister Lord Melbourne. The well-bred, laid-back statesman acted as a father figure. She would describe Melbourne effusively in her diary. There are not many like him in this world of deceit. When he talks to me, and is with me, I feel safe. She would detail his life even down to his culinary likes and dislikes. His kindness and forbearance itself. The pair would spend hours together playing charades, drafts, and looking through picture albums, enlightening Victoria with endless (laughs) amusing anecdotes. (laughs) Melbourne acted as a crucial influence, fostering the young queen's new self-confidence, and acted to ignore or minimise social problems. David Cecil, Victoria's biographer, wrote, Victoria at this stage in her life was looking less for a lover than a hero. Unsurprisingly, she became an ardent Whig. Far from being an impartial monarch, Victoria was passionate about politics, and did not hesitate to make her views known. It would land her in trouble. When Flora Hastings, a lady-in-waiting for the Duchess, fell ill in 1839, Melbourne and Victoria were convinced that she was pregnant with John Conroy's child, a man Victoria still despised. Made to undergo a physical, her swollen abdomen was in fact liver cancer. After her quick death, the media stirred, and the Queen was accused of defamation. Victoria's carriage was pelted en route to Flora's funeral. Around the same time Lord Melbourne resigned, Victoria reluctantly invited Robert Peel to form a minority government in the newly formed Conservative Party that had grown from the old Tory party. Victoria took an instant dislike to Peel, comparing him unfavourably to her beloved Melbourne. The resignation triggered the bedchamber crisis. Peel insisted on all Whig ladies in waiting be replaced by Tories, as was customary. Already Victoria was being accused of being partisan. Her refusal to replace her Whig ladies added to that speculation. Peel, who would have needed to navigate Parliament with a weak government, refused to take office, and Melbourne was persuaded to remain as Prime Minister. Victoria, still in her teens, was seen as naive and overruling. It further damaged her reputation. For many, it was time for Victoria to find a husband. She was not keen, or at least not for a few years. From a young age, Victoria's influential uncle, Leopold I, had touted his nephew, Albert of Saxe-Coburg, as a match for his niece and as a way of maintaining his influence. Albert was Victoria's first cousin. He was hard-working, with a strong morality and intellect. Yet, Victoria was not won over upon their first meeting. I may like him as a friend, cousin, or brother, but I am very anxious that I should be of no breach of promise, for I never gave any. Albert was reportedly not too keen either. They didn't share many interests. The second time they met, Victoria became besotted. Melbourne gave his blessing, and keeping with tradition, Victoria invited Albert into her blue closet room and proposed. On the 10th of February, 1840, the pair were married at St. James's Palace. Only five Tories were invited to the wedding. This did not go down well. At the time, it was common for wedding dresses to come in a variety of colours. Victoria wished to show off the lace embroidery of her dress and requested it in white. She also asked that none of her guests wear the same colour, as to not draw attention away from her. thus starting the tradition of the white wedding dress. Albert was given the rank of Field Marshal, and invested into the Order of the Garter. He was naturalised as a British citizen, and referred to as His Royal Highness. The day after her wedding night, Victoria wrote, I never, never spent such an evening. My dearest, dearest, dear Albert. His excessive love and affection gave me feelings of heavenly love and happiness I never could have hoped to have felt before. Victoria and Albert would split their time between royal residences, including two new ones, Balmoral Castle in Scotland and Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. In 1848, the pair popularised a famous custom when Albert sent decorated trees to schools and army barracks around Windsor. The couple would then bring in their own Christmas tree, light the candles and hang gingerbread men. The pair had nine children. Many of their sons and daughters married into European monarchies to strengthen allegiances and the influence of the British Empire. Edward, known as Bertie, her eldest, born in 1841, became the heir apparent. During the birth of her youngest son, Leopold, her physician John Snow used a controversial new drug, chloroform, an effective anaesthetic. The drug Victoria described as soothing, quieting and delightful beyond measure had been viewed with suspicion. Victoria's use helped popularise the drug... John Snow would go on to discover the cause of a cholera outbreak, leading to fundamental changes to public health in Britain. No less than 42 grandchildren became members of raw families around Europe, in the kingdoms of Germany, Spain, Norway, Russia, Greece, Sweden, and Romania. Six descendants still rule over Europe's kingdoms. Charles III of the United Kingdom, Harold V of Norway, Philip VI of Spain, Carl XVI Gustav of Sweden, Margaret II of Denmark, and Philip of Belgium. Victoria was the first in her family to carry Haemophilia B, a blood clotting disorder. She herself was not a haemophiliac, but due to her vast lineage, the disorder was passed to members of royal families right across Europe. The pair set the tone at court, Early on, Victoria had insisted that Albert play no part in the governing of the country. Yet, with Albert's desire and Melbourne's insistence, this wouldn't last, and Albert became perhaps the most important and influential consort in British history. He began to see dispatches and meet ministers. Due to Victoria's many pregnancies, she was often incapable of conducting day-to-day business, especially when she suffered from postnatal depression. Soon Albert had access to the red boxes. Soon he was fulfilling the role and functions of the sovereign. Albert had a deep influence over Victoria, and it was long-lasting. He taught her the importance of hard work, ways of business, and the importance of maintaining private intelligence abroad. Albert also had a deep influence on Victoria's politics. She would shift from a position of political partisanship to a position above party politics, a true constitutional monarch. Albert proved his worth when he engineered a compromise by encouraging some of Victoria's Whig ladies to retire. This allowed Peel to take office in 1841 without a repeat of a bedchamber crisis. The following year Louise Lazen was also encouraged into retirement, a woman Albert called a crazy, common, stupid intriguer and chief rival for Victoria's loyalties. Though Lady Lyon commented, there was a vein of iron which ran through the Queen's extraordinary character. The iron could bend. She was able to re-evaluate and alter her judgment. In reality, Victoria would often succumb to Albert's judgment, her supposed intellectual better half, writing, we women are not made for governing. When Albert would berate Victoria for her sudden outbursts, she would invariably concede to the most perfect of beings, Albert. Nevertheless, Victoria did retain her power. It was very much a dual monarchy. They worked on adjacent desks. Albert would sift through papers before handing them to Victoria. Yet, how truly influential could a constitutional monarch and her consort be? The pair saw foreign policy as a key area of influence, due to their growing number of relatives in the Royal Courts of Europe. They sought to use their personal intelligence to ensure that Victoria never becomes a Mandarin figure which has to nod its head in assent or shake it in denial as its minister pleases. While the pair worked their diplomatic levers abroad, Britain was developing technologically at an astonishing rate. The 1840s saw railway mania, In 1825, the world's first public railway using steam locomotives was opened on a line between Stockton and Darlington, used to connect collieries. Then, five years later, a line was built between Liverpool and Manchester. It was the first to rely exclusively on locomotives, to have a double track, timetables, and a signalling system. In the reign of Victoria, rail travel truly changed Britain. The Great Western Railway was engineered by Isambard Kingdom Brunel, one of the most prolific figures in engineering history. It was nicknamed God's Wonderful Railway. The GWR was famed as the Holiday Line, taking many to the resorts of the Bristol Channel and the Southwest. To build the colossal lines, Brunel would dig and measure, riding on horseback to explore vast regions. The GWR included a two-mile tunnel, taking six years to complete. It was dug from two ends, meeting in the middle, and was only off by one and a quarter inches. He built innovative viaducts and bridges, transforming British transport. He also designed cathedral-like railway stations. Victoria chose the GWR for her first train journey, Indeed, the very first for a British monarch, when she took a ride from Slough near Windsor Castle to Paddington, London. Brunel also launched the Great Western, a paddle steamer carrying passengers across the Atlantic in just 15 days, and the very first iron-hulled, screw-propeller-driven ship, the Great Britain. He helped his father dig the Thames Tunnel, the first under a navigable river, as viaducts, bridges, tunnels, and railways transformed British transport. By the end of Victoria's reign, one billion passengers had travelled by train on 16,000 miles of track. While railway mania did hit Ireland, the 1840s would live in memory for starkly different reasons. A potato fungus was spreading across Europe, Almost half the Irish population depended on the potato. The average Irishman ate 14 pounds of potato per day. It grew well in the climate, even in poor soil, and produced good harvests. When the fungus destroyed potato crops, millions faced starvation. The British response to the growing famine was underwhelming and callous. The Corn Laws had raised food prices artificially, with cheaper imports blocked to protect British producers. It meant grain was unaffordable for most of the Irish population. This meant little relief, as interest to British landowners remained the priority. Emergency relief was slow. This was blamed on Ireland's poor infrastructure and corruption. The reaction was largely muted, when the Ottoman Sultan Khalifa Abdul-Majid declared his intention to send £10,000 to aid Ireland's farmers, £800,000 in today's money. Victoria intervened and requested he send just £1,000, as to not show up her £2,000 donation. Instead, the Sultan sent secret ships full of food, despite the English attempts to block import. The Brits did set up public works programmes. These set half a million starving Irish to work building roads, often pointless projects, in order to compensate the British for the aid they were receiving. Emaciated workers could not keep up. Many fell behind on rents and were evicted. Others turned to crime. Many wanted to be caught. Transportation was a better life. Peasants died on the streets. Those who could fled on so-called coffin ships. Rife with disease, bodies were tossed overboard in their hundreds. Those who survived the journey settled in Boston, Baltimore, Philadelphia and New York City. By the end of the 1840s, one million had died and one million had emigrated. Ireland had lost a quarter of its population. It was perhaps Ireland's darkest day, darker even than the invasion of Oliver Cromwell 200 years before. Following the famine, Prime Minister Robert Peel repealed the Corn Laws, a move a young fellow Tory Benjamin Disraeli strongly denounced, calling it the willful destruction of a great party by its leader. The repeal cost Peel his premiership and the Tories their relationship with the landowners, yet it removed the artificial price setting benefiting the bottom 90% of earners as the price of bread halved over the next 30 years. Victoria's lack of compassion for the famine in Ireland is also reflected in her failure to confront the misery of the working class. The Chartists called for sweeping electoral reform, for suffrage for all men over 21, secret ballots removing property qualifications, payments for MPs to allow the working class to stand, equal constituency sizes and annual parliaments, the last of the demands being the only one not later adopted. The Charters failed to persuade Parliament but succeeded in inspiring future groups to campaign. Victoria dismissed the group as worthless and wanton men and gave full support to their repression. While revolutions had gripped 19th century Europe in France, Austria, Poland and Italy, in Victoria's mind, Britain was unshaken. Revolutions are always bad and cause untold misery. Obedience to law and sovereignty is obedience to a higher power, divinely instituted for the good of the people. Victoria had transformed into a true conservative. One of the era's great debates was around deserved, and undeserved poor, and who was worthy of support. The 1834 Poor Laws had established a workhouse system designed to be punitive and miserable, to discourage entry and thus reduce dependence on the state. Families were separated, children worked up to 15 hours per day. Disraeli observed that the system announced to the world that in England poverty, is a crime. Many saw workhouses as a sepulchre in which they are entombed alive, of all their earthly hopes. For the old and infirm, the only exit from the workhouse would be in a coffin. While Victoria remained largely immune to the suffering of the working class, she did make some charitable contributions, albeit limited. Instead of energy spent aiding the working class, Victoria and Albert put their energy into showcasing the British Empire. In 1851, the Great Exhibition opened at Crystal Palace, Hyde Park. It displayed the Empire's wealth and achievements. The 100,000 objects included the famous Kohinoor, the largest known diamond in the world, Maori ornaments, and a Celtic brooch. But also many technological achievements, designed to awe the 6 million visitors, many fittingly travelling by train. Everything from door locks, the precursor to the fax machine, the bicycle, a flushing toilet, and the first automatic voting machine. The event even had a sponsor, the world's first soft drink, Schweppes. It was the pinnacle of Victoria's and Britain's self-confidence. Yet while Victoria and Albert basked in the glory of the empire, a new dawn of liberalism and socialism was slowly breaking. Charles Dickens was speaking at public meetings for the needy and donating to hostels for the homeless. John Stuart Mill continued to campaign for true democracy, claiming a person may cause evil to others, not only by his actions, but by his inaction. And Karl Marx... In the shadow of the exhibition itself, wrote of class conflict and the evils of capitalism and imperialism. In the age of Victoria, Britain had never stood so tall on the world stage. Aggressive expansionism and trade meant Britain strode into new, very foreign theatres, to the very edges of the known world. By the mid-19th century, Britain was edging closer to a new rival in Asia, Expansionist Russia When a pro-British leader in Afghanistan was replaced with an ostensibly pro-Russian leader, Britain invaded. Afghanistan was strategically important for Britain's rapidly growing Indian Empire against Expansionist Russia. Britain placed a puppet back in Kabul, yet struggled to keep hold of the country. It was a hostile, foreign terrain. When British and the Indians surrendered, they retreated through the icy mountain passes back to British India. Of the 16,000 soldiers only one made it back. He was half dead, his skull half smashed by an Afghan sword. Saved only by the copy of Blackwood's magazine he had stuffed into his hat. By the 1850s Russia was gaining territory and strategic influence taking advantage of a declining Ottoman Empire. Britain felt threatened, so did the French. When the Turks declared war on the Russians in Crimea in 1853, the Brits and the French joined forces. The Russians were underestimated, as was the weather. In October 1654, at Balaclava, freezing Brits were forced to cut eye holes in woollen socks and pour them over their heads to keep warm. Famously commemorated by Alfred Lord Tennyson, the Light Brigade, led by the Earl of Cardigan, launched a full frontal assault on the Russian artillery. The Russians, well-prepared and well-positioned, watched 600 men galloping in the wrong direction into the Valley of Death. The Russians, so confused by the disarray, assumed the British were drunk and picked them off with ease. The assault ended with high British casualties and no decisive gains. Miscommunication and poor intelligence against an organised enemy resulted in one of the most embarrassing defeats in British military history. Britain's failures in Crimea led to a change in leadership as Palmerston replaced Aberdeen, as Prime Minister. The war dragged on until 1856. It weakened the Russian army and undermined its influence in Europe. Yet both sides suffered, with up to a quarter of a million succumbing to disease on both sides. The war also failed to settle relations between the powers of Eastern Europe. Yet when news of the deplorable conditions on the front reached Britain, Mary Seacole financed a trip to Crimea and set up a base to treat the sick and wounded. Florence Nightingale revolutionised the treatment of soldiers and helped to develop modern nursing. Victoria personally attended the Committee of Ladies, organising relief, and invited Nightingale to Balmoral Castle after the conflict. Britain's aggressive trading policy also led to conflict. In the 18th century, China had enjoyed good trade links with Europe, porcelain, silk, and tea in exchange for silver. Britain wanted a counter-trade, so they turned to opium. They started trading opium from British India to China. Recreational use of opium in China skyrocketed, leading to an addiction crisis and serious social and economic disruption. So China banned it. They executed dealers and destroyed British Opium at Chinese ports, increasing tensions and resulting in violent clashes. The Chinese reacted by halting British food supplies, escalating tensions further. In November 1839, Chinese warships clashed with merchant ships and war broke out. In 1840, the British captured Nanking. A peace treaty forced China to cede Hong Kong, pay millions to the British, and opened five treaty ports in Chinese cities to British merchants. The British were made their most favoured trading partner. When the British became dissatisfied with the results of a treaty, tensions increased again. When the Chinese seized a cargo ship in 1856, war resumed. The Brits, with French support, captured Beijing, and China capitulated. Ten more Chinese ports opened, Christian missionaries entered the country, and the opium trade was legalized. Perhaps Britain's most important colony became a focal point in the mid nineteenth century, India. The East India Company set up in sixteen hundred, had set up outposts in textiles and spices. Influence grew, private company even had its own military to secure its position. The company had a monopoly on trade. It sought to repress indigenous populations. Land for mosques and temples were taken for churches. Deliberate segregation increased between the British and the natives. Taxes were rising, banditry growing, and tensions were palpable. In 1857, tensions boiled over when a new rifle was manufactured, the Enfield P-53. It required new cartridges. These were to be greased with beef and pork fat. This was deeply offensive to those manufacturing them, Hindu and Muslim sepoys. What's more, British military drills recommended that soldiers snap off the greased end of a cartridge with their mouths containing the bullet at the muzzle. On the 29th of March 1857, an intoxicated Indian soldier called Mangal Pandey loaded a musket and fired on a British regiment, calling for an all-out mutiny. When he failed to rouse his fellow compatriots, he turned the musket on himself, shooting himself in the chest. Unfortunately for him, he failed to die. He survived, was tried and executed. However, news led to widespread mutiny during the following months. The British were slow to react. There were just 45,000 British soldiers on the entire subcontinent, and more would take months to arrive. The rebels marched on and secured Delhi, the seat of the last Mughal emperor, Bahadur Shah Zafar, the emperor in name only. He gave the rebels his blessing. Support for the rebellion was not, however, universal. Many Muslims and Sikhs remained largely loyal, not wishing for a Gurkha rule. Soon, Delhi was besieged by the reinforcements from across the empire. After two years, the rebellion was crushed. Both sides committed atrocities, with hundreds of thousands of Indians killed. When the British media reported on the massacre of British men, women and children, and of mass rape, British soldiers were outraged and bent on revenge. The Brits organised traditional Mughal executions. Rebels, six at a time, were tied to the mouths of cannons and blown to pieces. One account detailed a mass execution of 300 rebels in this fashion, following a British victory. The scale of punishments was seen as largely justified by a riled-up British public. The rebellion did see the end of the East India's company, Rule of India. The government of India was transferred to the British Crown. The Governor-General of India became the Viceroy. Twenty years later, Victoria was delighted to be given the title of Empress. In March 1861, Victoria's mother, the Duchess, died. It sent Victoria deranged with grief. So much so that there were rumours that she had gone the way of George III. While she mourned, Albert took up the workload, including the Duchess's estates. Albert had always found Victoria's emotional nature difficult and was naturally less outwardly invested. Hard work and frequent travelling meant Albert began to decline rapidly. He put on significant weight and was visibly ageing despite only being in his early 40s. He became morbid, a pessimist, and a hypochondriac. He continued to work and to govern. In late 1861, there was a genuine fear that Britain would be dragged into civil war in the United States after the US Army took control of a British mail ship called the RMS Trent and seized two Confederate diplomats. When Foreign Secretary John Russell entered into an aggressive to-and-fro with President Abraham Lincoln, Albert intervened and rewrote one of Russell's letters in order to help soothe tensions. Britain's involvement in the Civil War was averted. In November 1861, Albert's attention was turned to a family crisis. He became aware that his eldest son, Edward, nicknamed Bertie by the royal family, was keeping an actress in his student room in Cambridge. Albert was appalled. He had a strict moral compass and confronted his son about his philandering. Just weeks later, Albert was seriously ill, having been diagnosed with typhoid fever, drugged with brandy frequently, and nursed by daughter Alice. He was racked and exhausted. On the 14th of December, 1861, Surrounded by his wife and his five children, he uttered, I have such sweet thoughts, and died at the age of 42. For me, life came to an end on the 14th of December. My life was dependent on his. I had no thoughts except of him. My whole striving was to please him, to be less worthy of him, But oh, to be cut off from the prime of life. It cannot, I am sure. It will not last. Those blessed arms will receive me very shortly. Never to part. Victoria had convinced herself that she would be unable to cope and entered a long period of immense grief. Her palaces were frozen in time. Photos displayed were preserved exactly as they were for decades. Clothes, fresh linen and shaving water were continually prepared, and guests would continue to sign Albert's guestbook on Victoria's insistence long after his death. She even began attending séances. While it was customary to wear black for up to a year when a relative dies, depending on your relation to them, Victoria would wear black for the rest of her life, and insisted on her daughters and ladies to follow suit. She refused to bring the family together in grief, as she blamed Bertie due to the trauma over his discovery of his affair just weeks before he died. She effectively retired from public life and gained the moniker The Widow of Windsor. The early years were particularly difficult, later writing, Those paroxysms of despair and yearning, and of daily, nightly longing to die. For the next three years, it never left me. But even beyond those three years, she remained retired, ceasing to perform ceremonial functions, refusing to open Parliament for five consecutive years. Even when she returned, she refused to speak. She had always found the experience nerve-wracking, but Albert had put her at ease. Her significant weight gain made her even less comfortable in making public appearances. One man helped fill the void of Albert, John Brown, he was the leader of the Queen's Pony, Victoria's personal attendant. He was brought down from Osborne House to try and encourage Victoria out of seclusion. He became chief servant. Victoria became reliant on a dominant male figure. He was very unpopular with the public and household. He was arrogant, aloof, hubristic and informal with Victoria, calling her woman and ordering her about. He thought he was above other servants, and started controlling who Victoria saw. He was also an alcoholic. When he passed out after drinking too much, Victoria blamed it on an earthquake, to attempt to save his blushes. Rumours in the press about an affair, and even a secret marriage, circulated. She was nicknamed Mrs. Brown. The public was losing sympathy for the Queen, In March 1864, a protester affixed a notice to the railings of Buckingham Palace that read these premises to be let or sold in consequence of the late occupants' declining business. The only time she did make a public appearance was to open memorials for Albert, most famously the Royal Albert Hall, built in 1871, partly through profits from the Great Exhibition. It took 10 years to complete the Albert Memorial in 1872 in Kensington Gardens. £100,000 or £10 million in today's money. It proved unpopular with the public that had moved on. More rumours spread that she'd gone mad like George III. Other rumours suggested that she was planning to abdicate and her own children were planning an intervention to get her to return to public life. They were also being prevented from performing duties. Republicanism spirit increased. More clubs opened across the country, and Republican newspapers saw a growth in circulation. France had become a republic once more under Napoleon III, and the country was beginning to consider Britain without a monarchy. Victoria's absence proved to many that a monarchy was unnecessary. The growth in Republican-feeling alarmed politicians. This seclusion also proved hugely inconvenient for ministers who would need to travel to Balmoral or Osborne House in order to gain her signature. Many ministers were now pleading with Victoria to resume her duties, some more tactfully than others. Victoria was playing the frail feminine card, according to one of her generals suggesting her inactivity was down to a lack of interest. Eventually, she began to re-emerge. She published a book called Leaves in the Journal of Our Life in the Highlands, covering personal writings from the 1840s up to Albert's death. It became a bestseller. Over 100,000 copies were sold by the end of the year, and was the first book published by a monarch since James I. She then appeared... She rode in an open carriage to the Royal Horticultural Society in Kensington through London. In late 1871, Bertie developed typhoid fever and became gravely ill. On the 14th of December 1871, ten years to the day of Albert's death, Victoria was once again at the bedside of another beloved family member. Newspapers and magazines were preparing his eulogy, He then made an astonishing recovery. It helped rebuild the mother-son relationship that had been strained for a decade. The public then regained their sympathy for the Queen, resulting in a boost of popularity when in 1872, Arthur O'Connor waved a pistol at Victoria. John Brown wrestled him to the ground. She later wrote, It is worth being shot at to see how much one is loved. It was not the first time an attempt had been made on Victoria's life. In fact, eight assassination attempts were made. In 1840, Edward Oxford shot at Victoria in an open carriage. She was pulled down, he was seized, and committed to an asylum. Two years later, John Francis attempted the same, but either he lost his courage or his gun misfired, and he slipped away however he was spotted by albert the royal couple aware an assassin was on the loose decided to ride out the next day in a deliberate attempt to flush francis out and they succeeded a police officer assigned to patrol the park succeeded in grabbing francis but not before he had fired the shot of the queen he was transported to australia in the same year john william bean a dwarf, fired a faulty gun loaded with bits of tobacco. He received 18 months of hard labour. In 1849, unemployed Irish bricklayer William Hamilton shot at a queen in an attempt to be imprisoned so he could be fed. He too was transported. In 1850, Robert Pate, an ex-British army officer, known around Hyde Park for his slightly lunatic-like behaviour, met the Queen from a crowd, and hit her on the head with a cane. The action marked the nearest assassination attempt Queen Victoria had ever faced, as she was left with a scar and a bruise for some time. After the attack, Pate was sent to the penal colony of Tasmania. The final attempt in 1882 saw assailant Roderick McLean wrestled to the ground by Eton schoolboys and assaulted with umbrellas after he fired a shot at Victoria. He was sent to an asylum. Motivations overall were less political and more out of desperation for food, or perhaps for fame and notoriety. By the 1870s, about a quarter of the world's population fell under the British Empire and Victoria's rule – Canada, South Africa, part of the Caribbean, West and East Africa, India, Sudan, Hong Kong, Australia and New Zealand. The sun never set on the British Empire. The decade saw one of the greatest political rivalries in British history. Conservative Benjamin Disraeli and Liberal William Gladstone became titanic political rivals. Both served twice each between 1868 and 1885, dominating British politics, and they became eminent figures of Victorian public life. Disraeli, born of a non-observant Jew, was baptised an Anglican at the age of 12. During the 60s, he entered into Victoria's grief and helped restore her self-confidence. They bonded over mutual loneliness, Disraeli having also lost his spouse. She had previously dismissed Disraeli as unprincipled, reckless and disrespectful. Now the flamboyant, honey-toned politician had forged an intimate relationship with the Queen. Disraeli was the father of one-nation conservatism and played a central role in the creation of the modern Conservative Party. One Nation sought to combine social and economic programmes to benefit the ordinary person. He believed that at root, both nations, the working class and the privileged wealthy, sought the same things. The elite should work to reconcile the interests of all social classes. He pushed through the Reform Bill of 1867, reducing property qualifications to vote and allowing some working-class men the vote if their income reached a certain threshold. He introduced the Education Act, which introduced board schools, and proposed all schools became secular, while Victoria didn't care too much for Disraeli's for social policy. She was a fan of his plans for the empire. He identified strongly with the empire, and he was of the belief that military action should be used to expand it. He was particularly suspicious of Russia, and through the great game aimed to further reduce their power and influence. William Gladstone, on the other hand, was educated on the Bible and classics. He viewed Israeli with disdain. Posterity will do justice to that unprincipled maniac. His relationship with Victoria was starkly different. She found him pompous, severe, and condescending. His attempts to encourage her back into public duty was seen as tactless and insensitive. He angered Victoria, who had no time for his moralistic approach. Gladstone equally deplored Disraeli's approach of ingratiating flattery. Victoria said Gladstone spoke to her as though she was a public meeting, not a woman. Much to Victoria's ire, Gladstone was also suspicious and hesitant when it came to expanding the empire. When Disraeli made Victoria Empress of India, Gladstone was strongly against it. This did not help relations. In the 1870s, Disraeli's pursuit of the Great Game led him to purchase shares in the Suez canal, meaning it didn't fall under French control and secured access to the subcontinent, he also successfully obtained Cyprus. With expansionism extremely popular in Britain, young explorers dreamt of a world under British control. Africa was still largely unexplored by European powers. By the beginning of the 20th century, 90% of the continent was colonized. Railroads were built, marketplaces created and institutions of government and law introduced. Cecil Rhodes controlled nine-tenths of the world's diamond resources. The British military ripped the natives apart with Maxim guns, the world's first machine guns, when faced with spears. In 1884, the Berlin Conference was called between 14 European countries, chaired by German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. No African representatives were invited. The aim was for European leaders to claim African land without coming into conflict with each other, to spread Christianity and European civility, to create areas of free trade for all European trade in Africa. Resources were hugely exploited, a few hundred men well-equipped, outnumbered, outpowered rebels. By the 1880s, Abyssinia exploited European rivalries and grew stronger defeating the Italians, though this was the exception. Britain dominated, colonising Egypt, parts of modern-day South Africa, Nigeria, and the Gold Coast. Only Abyssinia and Free state American-supported Liberia avoided colonisation. Back home, following the death of Disraeli, Gladstone dominated alone. Victoria had hoped he would retire but no such luck. He had resigned once in 1885, after failing to support General Charles Gordon against a rebellion in Sudan. For a year, Gordon was besieged at Khartoum. After food supplies were running low and pressure mounted on Gladstone's government to send troops, they arrived. Two days late. The siege had been broken, and Gordon had died a national hero. Victoria blamed Gladstone, and the Prime Minister was accused of being soft and an anti-imperialist. The Queen even sent him an uncoded telegram rebuking his actions. This was overstepping the mark for a constitutional monarch. Yet she was popular enough, and the issue serious enough, that she got away with it. Despite this, Gladstone formed his fourth and final government in 1892. Victoria was nonplussed that the empire could be entrusted to the shocking hand of an old, wild, incomprehensible man. Gladstone introduced the Irish Home Rule Bill, a bill that had already been rejected. It passed the Commons but was soundly defeated in the Lords. Victoria and Disraeli had both condemned such a move. The defeat in the Lords was a true assertion of hereditary might against the will of the electorate. Gladstone resigned for the final time. In 1887, Victoria had celebrated her Golden Jubilee. Many foreign dignitaries were invited, including 50 kings and queens, not just from Europe, but from around the world, including the heir apparent and future queen of Hawaii, Lily Uakalani. She would prove to be the final monarch of Hawaii after the annexation of the United States. She told Victoria that she was in fact a blood relative, because her grandfather had eaten Captain Cook. Towards the end of her reign, when servants from India arrived at Windsor Castle in 1877, her attendant Abdul Karim taught between many Hindu and Urdu phrases to better communicate with her servants. Victoria wrote, It is a great interest to me, for both the language and the people. I have naturally never come into real contact with before. She made him her Indian secretary in 1892, causing resentment in her household, many thinking he ought to be below their station, not above it. In 1897, Victoria became the first British monarch to celebrate a Diamond Jubilee, surpassing George III as the longest reigning monarch in British history. She invited premiers from around the empire, 11 prime ministers in total, Monarchs were not invited. Instead, they were represented by princes and princesses. This irked her eldest grandson, a man who was soon to become infamous, Kaiser Wilhelm II. In fact, the decision not to invite monarchs may partly have been made with the Kaiser in mind. In her journal, the Queen wrote, No one ever, I believe, has met with such an ovation as was given to me passing through those six miles of streets. The cheering was quite deafening, and every face seemed to be filled with real joy. I was much moved and gratified. 1900 proved to be a difficult year for Victoria. She was deeply affected by the death of her son, Alfred. The Boer War had left her anxious after several early defeats. She was suffering from rheumatism, which left her bound to a wheelchair, and cataracts left her with poor vision. In January 1901, she fell ill and was struggling to eat. There were various false alarms when family members gathered at her bedside only for her to temporarily recover. News of her illness was not revealed in detail to the public, but finally a news bulletin allowed the country to brace itself the Queen is slowly sinking. On the 22nd of January 1901, the family gathered once more, including Wilhelm. The Queen said to her doctor, Sir James, I am very ill. Your Majesty, you'll soon be better. Victoria died at half past six in the evening. Her death left the country in a sense of shock losing a figure of such continuity. For most Britons, she was the only monarch they had ever known. The country was in a sombre mood, with normal activity suspended. Arthur Balfour, future Prime Minister, said, I can hardly yet realise the magnitude of the blow which has fallen upon the country. A blow indeed, sorrowfully expected, but not on that account, less heavy when it falls. Across the world, countries marked her death, from Japan to the United States, where the flag flew half mast at the White House, the first such occasion for a foreign leader. She had requested a military funeral, befit for a soldier's daughter and the head of a British army, and a portrait of John Brown to be placed in her hand. Next to her beloved Albert, she was interred in the Royal Mausoleum, Frogmore in Windsor until the reign of elizabeth ii she was the longest reigning british monarch and the longest reigning queen regnant in world history victoria gave her name to an era her descendants still litter the royal houses of europe to this day In no era had Britain so drastically changed than the Victorian era. The population had quadrupled. In 1800, most people still dwelt in royal hovels, living off their land. They had no running water, sewerage, public education, healthcare or rapid transport. When Victoria died, the population had access to electricity, exotic foods and public schools. Germ theory led to more vaccinations, anaesthetics, antiseptics, and x-rays. The first electromagnetic signal had crossed the Atlantic by radio wave, and Alexander Graham Bell had patented the telephone. Charles Darwin had paved the way for the creation of evolutionary biology. Trains reached every city and town, and cars were appearing on tarmacked roads throughout the country. Victoria was one of the most commemorated individuals in place names in history, from lakes to mountains to cities, on five continents across what was the British Empire. She embodied constitutional decorum, offering people stability and continuity. The Victorian era had seen Britain reach the peak of its global power. The 20th century would see its decline. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for Edward the Seventh. As always, you can get in touch through email the Kings and Queens Podcast at gmail.com on Twitter, Kings Queens Pod, Instagram, Kings Queens Podcast, and the Kings and Queens Podcast on Facebook as well. So send in your messages. Thank you for listening, and I will. See you next time.